welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. My name is Scott. I'm joined today by Craig. Hello. And also by Drew. Hello there. Today, we have decided to take a look at some of the works of David Mamet, mainly because I generally like the works of David Mamet, and most of us do here do too, so we thought we'd just take a look at them because, well, it's been a tough couple of months, so we thought we'd just have some, some films that we like. So, uh, to that in mind, we have a number to get through, and we're starting off with House of Games. So, over to Scott. <laughs> Why, thank you, Scott. <laughs> yes. Seamless. <laughs> yes, House of Games, which is the first feature that Mamet wrote and directed, which sees him start down a path he'll only infrequently stray from, as Lindsay Krause's psychiatrist, Dr Margaret Ford, attempts to straighten out a patient's gambling debt with Joe Mantegna's hustler, Mike Mancusco, only to find herself drawn into his world of con artistry. Intrigued by the personalities and schemes of Mike and his crew, she soon finds herself romantically attached to Mike and is seemingly accidentally included in part of one of the gang's hustles. Although if you have any familiarity with Pamet's work, then you'll probably already have figured out that there's more to this than it would initially seem. Right, uh, proving himself to be an iconoclast even from the outset of his career, Mamet attempts a daring gambit for the first 10 to 15 minutes of this film, casting only people who exhibit no acting capability whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Not all that big of a deal in the case of the good doctor's patients, but unfortunately this also applies to Lindsay Krause as well. Um, I initially supposed the stiff formality was just part of the characterization, hmm. but to be honest, she never really loosens up, apart arguably from the last scenes, which makes her a very difficult character to care about. I'd expect better from an Oscar-nominated supporting actress. Uh, by comparison, Joe Mantegna is amazing, but although only by comparison, it's a perfectly serviceable turn from an actor that I think by and large got much better as he got older, and you can apply much the same thinking to the supporting cast full of typically dependable names like Ricky Jay, Willie H. Macy, J.T. Walsh that are all fine, but not much more than that. Uh, there's a couple of films on here that I'd describe as good scripts with middling direction, and naturally this is the prime example. Mammoth, of course, is best known for his approach to dialogue, and on paper it should work for House of Games, but the cast don't make it sing the way that others covered in this episode's do. All of which is not to say that House of Games is an unpleasant experience, and in a lot of ways is a confident and assured debut feature, a film that lays a lot of the groundworks for what Mammoth goes on to be coming around for. It's just not completely essential viewing, but, well, I've seen less worthy entrance in the Criterion Collection. Uh, guys, what did you make of this? So, this is the first ten minutes of, of this movie I didn't really enjoy. Last half hour of this movie I didn't really enjoy. The hour sandwiched between those two parts I really, really enjoyed. Uh, there's an hour of really good movie here and I was actually surprised at how much I liked uh, Joe Mantegna is it Mantegna I think is that the received pronunciation Uh, actually because I can't really think of having seen him in much to be honest with you and for a good hour of this the Simpsons the voice work in the Simpsons oh fair enough I have, as it turns out, watched a lot of Criminal Minds for various reasons, and right. he's quite good in that. I will not yeah, hold it against you. Later. Um, <laughs> but this is one of those where I came out thinking, oh, I actually would quite like to see a, a bit more Joe Mantegna, because he, uh, he he acquits himself fairly well for most of this film. If I have any issues with this film, then yes, Lindsay Krause's performance is one of them. Although I think a recurring theme as we go through this, and you've already touched upon it, Scott, will be that it's difficult to gauge performance when an actor is being directed by David Mamet, because the requirements of 
the delivery of his dialogue are so hyper-specific that it sort of <laughs> removes all traditional notions of performance in a lot of cases. And it yeah. could be that Lindsay Krauss is really rubbish, or it could be that Lindsay Krauss is absolutely phenomenal in delivering exactly what it is that David Mamet asked of her. I just don't know. Either option is entirely possible or some sort of combination or sliding scale thereof. <laughs> um, but I did really like a great deal of this film. The biggest problem I've got this with this film, and as much as I'm really keen on David Mamet, I haven't, I, I actually hadn't seen this film. Um, and I'm glad that I have now. But the last half hour of this film, I just don't buy the fact that Margaret falls for Mike's final scam. It was so openly telegraphed and so obvious. Uh, there's a real thing where in the last half hour of this film, the quality of the performances from the rest of the cast, uh, from Mantegna and uh, Ricky Jay, sort of come apart a little bit. And as an audience, it's really obvious that they're up to something and I wasn't buying it for a second. And I am really surprised that Lindsay Krause's character did uh, and I found I found at that point my suspension of disbelief quite seriously challenged um, constraints of uh, my meta dialogue or otherwise so yeah I, I think a really solid hour of filmmaking here no frills filmmaking and you know we'll, we'll talk more as we go about the facts of how much Mamet likes a con and working within that framework and how he seems fascinated by those characters and like you know, tricksters, and it, like it's no surprise that he works so frequently with people like Ricky Jay, right? So yeah. he seems obsessed and sort of very much in love with with that sort of character trait. But um, I was really disappointed by the conclusion of the film, and not so much that I wouldn't recommend it to people because I think it's still a very interesting article and a pretty good film. But I just left feeling it could have been. Uh, it could have been wrapped up in a much more satisfactory fashion and I'm not entirely sure what went wrong. Yeah, I hadn't seen any of the films for this episode bar one and was quite looking forward to particularly in your enthusiasm for David. Is it Mamet, Craig? Is that the correct pronunciation? I don't. I've, I've swerved between Mamet and Mamet. I'm not 100% yeah. certain. I was wondering whether you knew for certain because I no, always I don't. it, but I prefer to do people the courtesy of pronouncing the name correctly if I can, but I don't know, and I didn't think to actually check that before this episode. No, uh, I nor think have you'll I. Find it pronounced mummy. <laughs> yeah, mum, mummy. I'm going to pronounce it mamet just because it rhymes with damn it, and, and that's enough for me. But uh, <laughs> damn it, Janet. Yeah, that was um, the phrase that was in my head as well. Yep. Um, but uh, and I was thinking um, that I've not actually seen many David and Mamet films, but looking through his filmography, I've certainly seen a, a fair number of things that he's written. Yeah. Um, yep. The Untouchables, Postman Always Rings Twice, um, Wag the Dog in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, so turns out I have liked some of his other films in the past, but when it, it came to this one and, uh, oh... Oh, this is a worrying sign that this first film, it's awful. <laughs> uh, I'm glad I'm not the only person that was really struck by how bad Lindsay Krause's acting is. It's mm. it's so wooden. Yeah. And I, I get your point about the the specificity of the delivery of the dialogue, Craig and whether she's hyper specificity, yeah. <laughs> but I'm I'm erring on the side of no because there are simple lines like there's two bits in particular that happen in the same scene. It's when they're in the hotel room with um, J.T. Walsh just after he gets killed and she goes, 
I can't be here. And then shortly after, say, I have to leave. Those are very simple lines. There's not really much inflection you can put in those, but she manages to get no inflection at all. She's basically comatose. Uh-huh. And yet, unfortunately for the rest of it, I, I thought Joe Mantegna was also, well, terrible would be unfair, but pretty poor. I, I just don't think he was up to kind of, what was the really? thing uh, yeah, I th- I, uh, Sorry, I, th- I thought his, I thought like the earlier scenes between the two of them when they first met, I thought he was actually quite charismatic. I sort of really bought him or I really bought her buying into the con and, and being quite taken with his character, but obviously mileage will vary. Yeah, yeah. no, um, I just, I don't, he didn't do a lot. I mean, the way I was thinking of it during this, um, this is much less of a distinction now, of course, because of how good TV stuff is, but mm. to me, it felt the difference between a television actor and a film actor, which yep. was a, a real distinction back when this was made. Yes. Uh, and that's how I felt about it. And then, yeah, I think beyond the fact that so much is dependent on these two leads and I didn't think either of them were particularly great and one of them was actively awful. It's just that the script was kind of rubbish because every single twist that was coming, I knew it was coming. I mean, and I was watching this thinking, right, this is a 1987 film. I've seen a lot of films, especially a lot of films in this kind of genre since then. Am I just seeing all of these being telegraphed because of my familiarity with the subject? And then I watched all these films thinking, no, we just can't write twists. Um, he loves them, he can't write them. Hmm. And in every single twist that was coming, I, I knew what was coming, when and how. It seemed really obvious to me. And then you have the kind of the second layer, which you also mentioned, which is, yeah, how does this person who's this highly successful psychiatrist, presumably a very smart person, not see any of this stuff? Hmm. It's really clear. Well, this is going to be a long episode for you, man. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it is, Craig. How perspicacious of you. Um, if only Lindsay Crousey's character could have been so perspicacious. Yeah, and yes, yeah, so I, I mean, it's not by any means the worst film I've ever seen. It just, it did do very little for me and the the terrible delivery of the lights is enough to just kill any interest in the film for me at all. Uh, and then, yeah, didn't like the plot. Well, up until the point where, like, I think everything in the plot was predictable up until the ending, which wasn't predictable because it was stupid. Mm. It's like, why, why did that character suddenly do that? That's not believable. Yeah, the, that's where the majority of my problems lie with it. I think the, the hyper-specificity of the delivery of dialogue and, and stuff is just, it's, it's a hill that if if you are, if, if it's not your cup of tea to get over that hill, then you're probably, yeah, I can understand why this is going to be quite a trek for you tonight then, getting through this. It's, it's something that I really like and I kind of detach myself from the notion of a performance when I watch I'm, I'm uh, a mammoth film because it's yeah. just it's kind of the reason I like them so much is because it's kind of not the consideration it, it, it literally is all about the dialogue but mm-hmm. that can sometimes whether it's just that the actors struggling to deliver or they are just literally de- delivering it as precisely as he requires then it's yeah it's something that I think you'll, you'll either enjoy it or you won't and I don't think anyone will blame you for not particularly liking it. Yeah, I mean, I clearly, as I said, like some things I've mentioned, like Wag the Dog or The Untouchables yeah. or things, films that, I've, that he's written that I've really enjoyed. Mm. I really like dialogue. It's mm. pretty much my favourite thing in films. It's one of the reasons I like the Coen Brothers so much. But then the Coen Brothers dialogue is incredibly specifically written and delivered. 
Yeah. And it's endlessly fascinating to me. Yeah. So maybe it's just not a good director. Maybe that's the problem. Mm. Um, there's probably something to that. I mean, it's like there's a lot of other films. The films on this list that I think kind of worked really well are the ones that seem to have enough talent who are strong enough or confident enough to kind of perhaps just override what Mamet was trying to tell them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, I mean, particularly in this instance, House of Games, you, you can kind of see a version where if um, Lindsay Krause's character got progressively you know less uptight and yes. kind of more more involved human. in his her, <laughs> more involved in uh mike's world then the ending would make sense but because mm-hmm. she does not the ending does not make sense no and it's like there's a kind of you can kind of draw a platonian ideal out of this where you can see how it would have worked properly and this kind of doesn't quite make it mm-hmm. yes yeah, so there is probably something to that uh, when when mamet gets his way maybe he shouldn't yeah. <laughs> I'm, al- I'm also super intrigued in this film right with L- Lindsay krauss's character in general because it's kind of a, an archetype that exists in quite a lot of his films where because typically his films are very male-centric, right? And where you have a, a lone female character, as is, as is the case with this film and some of the others we'll speak about tonight, Lindsay Krauss's character in this film is a is a very masculine feminine presence. If you know, <laughs> she's very she she's a, a she displays more masculine traits than you would typically associate with with you know an average female character in a movie. She's very forthright. She's very sort of, I don't know what it is I'm trying to say, but it it stuck out to me enough that I felt there must be a specific reason why he's emasculated this feminine character quite so much. But I I never could quite reconcile that by the end of the film. I'm not entirely sure whether that is just a stylistic choice on his point or whether he's trying to say something by placing that female character within this world of men and making her more... That sounds really reductive to say masculine, but you know what I'm getting at. Yeah, it's not massively unusual, though, for for male screenwriters to be really struggling mm. to write women well. Yeah, but I don't think it is just that he's struggling to write a woman well. It seems like a very definite choice to make her that way. And that's 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 the other thing that I struggled with in this film. I'm not sure to what end that is. Because if if you look at, for example, one of the films we'll we'll talk about later where uh, Rebecca's Rebecca Pigeon's character is, you know, slightly more uh, of that type of character but still very definitely uh, a feminine presence. It's mm. not the case with uh it's not the the case with Lindsay Krauss in this movie, and I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's just, you know, if that's purely stylistic or if there's uh, there's there's something more resonant to what Mamet was trying to achieve with the material. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, certainly, if Lindsay Krauss had any kind of problem with it, then she should have been in a good position to point out any kind of. Flaws well, yes, exactly. They were married at the time. Well, maybe, um, <laughs> well, maybe she did, and that's why that's why they're no longer <laughs> so married. Uh, See so yes. that I didn't know. I. I um, I went into every film in this list as cold as I possibly could and have mm-hmm. done no research on Mamet at all. I deliberately wanted to leave it to, mm-hmm. to this. I meant to, I did meant to like at least spend a few minutes um, giving a skim of his bio, but I, I never get around to this evening, but I didn't know that. Um, I knew he was married to Rebecca Pigeon, but mm-hmm. but yeah, it's like she, maybe she had the opportunity to say that. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, just in sort of vaguely related terms with women, though, it's at the end of the film, in the sort of the spelling it out for her scene in the mm-hmm. bar, 
and everybody's calling her a bitch. It's bitch, 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 bitch. Like, really? Is that necessary? Would people? Yeah. I mean, I know some people feel like that, but every single one of them repeatedly. And I, I did wonder whether that betrayed something about perhaps the misogyny of the writer. And I, I don't know if he's been accused of that before. I guess, and I didn't read anything about it, and I deliberately kept myself as close as possible to these films because I didn't. I knew yeah. vaguely what they were about, but I had deliberately not read. I wanted to be. As, I didn't even read like the summaries of the films before I started to watch them and anything like that yeah. synopses yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, the, that's, that's the thing is, as, as much as I enjoy Mamet's work I'm not actually familiar with the artist as much as I am his art so I skimmed the I, I was interested in this and I skimmed his Wikipedia entry earlier because of course the repository of all human knowledge right? <laughs> Infallible um, human knowledge Craig, that's and yes thing. absolutely and uh, I immediately went ooh and clicked on the bit that said mammoth and gender issues because I thought that's going to be pretty extensive. Nope, two sentences. <laughs> doesn't actually well, explain a- doesn't actually explain any gender issues but I, I also had that inclination that I thought I wonder actually here if there's a, a history of, of, of mammoth struggling with um, his portrayal of female characters and accusations of, uh, of misogyny and whatnot but nope uh, I couldn't see anything there, so I might need to look into that more. Yeah, I don't know if he's ever been accused of misogyny. In particular, we'll, we'll get to a film that is kind of mm. at least somewhat credited with starting a solid debate on what misogyny <laughs> could be on. Um, but unfortunately, I, again, I didn't actually know much about my mate, my mate, the person, until a little bit earlier. And um, yeah, now I'm going to call I him my mate because I have no respect mommy. for him. Um, he, uh, unfortunately, seems of late to have gone of the, if not exactly, full-on red hat MAGA type. He's at least adjacent to it. Oh, and God. is no. generally running around being a bit of a brick, which depressed me a bit earlier, I've got to admit. But uh, yeah, in terms of gender issues, it is possibly more just the fact that he, he just doesn't write women particularly well. And that's why he doesn't write a lot of women characters. And yeah. uh, I, I don't know if there's anything more to it than, or anything more deeply sinister than that, than, to it than that. And certainly it's, I, I don't see really any real evidence of anything else that he's done where he could be accused of that. Right. Um, it's more just yeah. the case of avoiding the issue by not really writing them as women yeah. as such, if you know what I mean. Are, so, are, um, you, are you about to do for Mamet? What you did for Jane Russell in the in that episode, <laughs> where you crushed my dreams by pointing out that she was a, basically a right wing lunatic, are you about to do the same? You about to do the same with Mamet? Uh, more or less, yes. Oh, He's not going to Andy Quaid, though, has he? Yes, it's, it's not really something I would have picked up from any of his work. Um, but <laughs> since yeah, since he's kind of effectively backed away from doing a lot of film work, he's written a few books that are mm. more explicitly kind of, I used to just be a libertarian, but now I'm a hardcore conservative because I've apparently lost the faculties of my mind. And I've, I, I don't understand what statistics is anymore and that kind of thing. So, To be yeah. honest, like, the fact that you've just said he was a libertarian, it's like, oh, no, oh, that's yeah. enough. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, although, I mean, where that began with my, my point um, at the beginning of that wasn't actually the... <laughs> you had a point. So it was, uh, yes, somewhere. Um, it was just like, why did he feel the need to have like this woman called a bitch repeatedly mm. by like five different, five, six different men? It's like, yeah, but yeah. it's only that one scene, so... Yeah, I'm I was going to say, if it's, if, 
if it's like the guy that she was shooting at the time that she's shooting him, you're like, well, I can forgive him. He's feeling a bit upset. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but it's like a kind of casual misogyny. I just wondered whether it kind of betrayed something about the writer himself or not. Yeah. Like, and, uh, I think we're inconclusive in that because none of the three of us have read enough about him, I no. guess, to satisfactorily answer that query I have. Well, I think we can confidently say he's a misogynist asshole. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we can't. Of course we Confidence can. Confidence and correctness are not necessarily the same. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 100%. The last, the last five years have taught us nothing. Oh, dear. And they certainly taught some people nothing. Well, yes. Right. Let's crack on. Let's go yeah, further down the right-wing terror hole. <laughs> Shall we move on then to Glengarry Glen Ross? We should. Grace. Grace. <laughs> Can I get another more quoted film that people haven't actually seen? Yes. <laughs> There's a big step up in the writing in Glenn Gary Glenn Ross compared to House of Games, and a quantum leap in terms of the quality of the cast. And my, what a cast. And that's just as well, as both top quality performances and a top quality screenplay are necessary to make the characters at the heart of this film, directed by James Foley from a screenplay by Mamet, based on his own stage play, in any way relatable or sympathetic. If you're not familiar with Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, you should know that the story is about cold collars. Yes, quite. I'll give you a second or two to finish muttering imprecations beneath your breath. And I've called them lying cold collars, but that would be somewhat tautological. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, the tautology there. Cut it out. This is, this is mammoth, mate. We don't have extraneous words. <laughs> uh, this group of reprobates work in an office in New York City. The play was set in Chicago, though I doubt either location is key to the action. Where they try, by hook or by crook, to foist the sale of less than prime real estate on unwilling potential buyers foolish enough to have filled out an unrelated form at some point in the past. The group consists of Al Pacino's sharp-talking Ricky Roma, using Scott's patented Scarface performance metric. Pacino here rates about 0.1 of a Scarface, or <laughs> normal person. Ed Harris's all-mouth and no-trousers Dave Moss, Jack Lemmon's washed-up Sheldon the Machine Levine, and Alan Arkin as... Alan Arkin? <laughs> Rounding things out are Kevin Spacey's mediocre but malicious office manager, John Williamson. Jonathan Price is a brow-beaten and hapless Mark. And in a role specifically written both for the film adaptation and for him, Alec Baldwin is the corporate motivator Blake, sent from downtown by Mitch and Murray to, in simple terms, put the fear up them in order to increase sales. Blake's speech to the workforce along with comically unsubtle brass balls prop, is the motivator for the action, as well as the source of a great many of the quotations that have slipped into popular culture among those who haven't even seen the film, as he informs them that they're all fired, but they have a week's opportunity to regain their jobs, after which the top two salesmen will be retained. Sales leads are then portioned out to the group, with the tantalising prospect of the new Glengarry leads for development in Florida and the reward for those who can close the sale. I feel I must point out that uh, that absolutely none of this has anything to do with hats. 
<laughs> which, which confused a much younger me for a long time, as a Glengarry in these parts is a hat what soldiers wear. <laughs> and indeed was being worn by myself in the Army Cadets the same year this film was released. I assumed for some time before seeing this that there was a connection. <laughs> there was not. <laughs> Rest assured. <laughs> The film's nighttime set first half concludes with the attempts of the salesmen to get sales on the board and Dave Moss's discussion with Arkans George of the idea of breaking into the office and stealing the Glengarry leads. The second portion begins, in the cold light of day, represented by a cool, unsaturated palette that contrasts with the warm, rich palette of the first half, with a burglary having taken place at the office and the police in attendance wishing to question all of the salesmen. Someone has something to hide. Spending any length of time with these shysters and hucksters ought to be unpleasant in leaving you wanting to give your soul a good shower, but the characters and dialogue and interplay are all captivating and rewarding. Unlike some of the other films we're covering in this episode, the dialogue isn't simply there for the sake of, or the sound of, the dialogue, with no substance beneath it. Though the... Uh, am I portraying how I feel about David Mamet, Craig? <laughs> you, you uh, might be. Though the actors are clearly thoroughly enjoying delivering it, and it is great, mm. but fleshes out character and motivation in a way that makes these people seem real. That doesn't work without great acting, though, and Glengarry Glenross is full of that, though it's Jack Lemmon that takes home the plaudits. Shelley's smooth, sickly sweet telephone voice is absolutely hateful, as is his <laughs> absolute utter lying bastard sales pitch. Not that that sets him apart. Yet it's impossible not to feel sympathy for the past's prime salesman, even without the information that he's desperately trying to find money to pay for his daughter's medical care. And that's thanks to Lemmy's performance. It's so distinctive, it even spawned a recurring character in The Simpsons. <laughs> Old Gil Gunderson. Oh boy, your whole life you work and you slave and scrimp and you steal just enough to get the sweet, sweet lick of that shiny brass ring. Where's Gil's lick? Doesn't Old Gil get a lick? <laughs> Less successful is James Foley's direction, as it's really hard to see much evidence of it. Glengarry Glen Ross is hardly alone in his selection of films in feeling stagey, but despite weather and establishing shots of New York City, the action feels apart from the world, small and self-contained, and leaves the feeling of this being a recorded play rather than cinema. However, it's a play I'd want to see, so yay, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, to be honest, being a bit stagey is something you'd say about pretty much every mammoth film, apart from the last couple, maybe. Yeah. Um, but I don't <laughs> mind that in the slightest. I understand that as being kind of the artefact of where it came from. A hell of a lot of competition, as I, I understand, to actually get a hold of these roles, uh, with people taking their usual pay cuts to, to get into it. And I can entirely understand why. Um, I don't think I mentioned this in my like top ten films back at the start of this endeavour, but yeah, this this would have been a, a very high contender for being on it. I absolutely love Glengarry Gay Loss. Uh, likewise, it is, likewise, it is just an acting a powerhouse uh, of film, and the, the dialogue is, of course, a great part of that. And I think it it is that kind of almost staccato delivery of things, people talking to each other, all that kind of stuff works really, really well in this context, um, particularly with all these characters, all of whom feel just absolutely great in a sort of slightly greasy, stickly way, but they all feel very real. I mean, even the guys that are, the least of them in terms of kind of being an out there character, like Kevin Spacey, somehow gets his moment in the sun at the end of it as well and that feels entirely believable and entirely sensible in that moment and uh, yeah, it's just a just a really great um, powerhouse acting performance from all all in the cast. Um, 
I believe it was you drew that put um, you know twelve angry men forward uh, for the kind of his sort of best mm. of your, your favourite films, and this kind of falls into that kind of same category for me. Um, there are similarities, certainly. Yes, yeah, so yeah. obviously very different, and not just because of a. Uh, Jack Lemmon's performance on it, but yes, you know, it, it has that kind of stagey performance to it, but I don't mind it in this instance. Um, it, it would have been nice to have a bit more of the trappings of, of being a film, but to be honest, they would have been just a, a cherry on a cake, um, and I, I'm not sure it would have been easy to kind of particularly integrate that when you are just talking about two characters talking to each other. Does it really matter how cinematic it looks? I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, what I'm trying to say is, I love this film, it's great. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say that I was given that as a a criticism per se. It's it's more of an observation because I enjoy the yeah. film so much yeah. and I enjoy the interaction and the dialogue. It's just that it, just, it didn't feel like a film. Um, yes, yeah, that, and, which is entirely fair and could be said about a lot of his films, yeah. I've got a more stagey film to talk about tonight. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, yes, we know you do. <laughs> no, isn't uh, Glenn Gary is essentially just the gold standard for this type of thing, isn't it? And I think it's quantifiably the the best film that Mamet has had uh, in, involvement in, uh, pro- arguably by some margin. Uh, the performances are. <sighs> beyond reproach probably i think it's fair to say and there's something about there's something about the movie adaptation i've i've seen a couple of uh, stage adaptations of uh, glengarry uh, stage performances rather of, of glengarry and they're never less than entertaining um, and engaging but there really is something about this movie and i do think it's the cast where everybody's just essentially operating at the peak of their game and it, it's it's the best uh, Mamet's screen work. Uh, it, it's not my favourite, but there is, I think, no cogent argument to be made for it being anything other than the best, um, and probably by a reasonable margin. So, yeah, I think everybody said enough uh, already. I wouldn't have anything else to add to it because it is, you know, it's not the most plot dense film. I'm not going to spend all night talking about the cinematography or anything. It is, it is what it is. It's a screen adaptation of a stage work, but it's about as good as that kind of thing is going to get. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, it's definitely just a critical mass of the talent involved in it. Um, mm-hmm. You could very easily imagine this with um, less talented cast, and it would be awful. Um, perhaps even as we discussed in the last film, if this had been delivered, uh, directed by Mamet himself, and uh, given a different perspective, and not given some actors a bit of a, a, a way to mm-hmm. um, express themselves, because I'm pretty sure that how Mamet wrote this film is not quite the way that Al Pacino decided to deliver a lot of it. <laughs> um, and I yeah. think it is all the better for that, because Al Pacino, yeah. when he wants to, can act quite well. There's a hot yes. take for you. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, it, it all just kind of comes together into just this lovely blend. I, I think you're right about the director, um, whose name I've just forgotten there. But James yeah, Foley. Yes, yeah, James Foley, I think it does not have a lot of um, leeway other than to just turn up and point the cameras in the right direction. Yeah. Um, and to tell tell his actors to try and act this and maybe he doesn't quite get to kind of unleash himself upon that but again it's all for the best this is mainly an actor's film that's why yeah. so many actors are clamoring to you, into it you can that's tell why it works so well you can tell he's not been there to micromanage you know which syllable to put emphasis on in every single yeah. sentence yes you know <laughs> yeah, but I thought maybe that's the the good thing because I, I'm mm. like aware that I did say like I kind of feel that the directors the directors basically MIA in this film that it feels like there's no stamp but yeah. mm. um, if you think of him more like 
a stage manager or or something yeah. like that, or a producer rather than a director, and that he's just there to make sure these actors perform the roles. Yeah. Whereas, ha- given my experience with all the rest of this stuff, yeah, had he been Mamet behind the camera, mm. it's like. Would it have been as good? I think maybe not. Probably uh, not. I mean, particularly Probably if, I mean, not. if a director's job is not so much to put a stamp on a work as to just deliver a great film, then clearly he's done a very good job <laughs> yes. because this is brilliant. Really. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, whether, yeah, with the micromanagement we're talking about, and like, like would the um, the, res- the result have been the same had it been Mammon? I am suggesting that the, yeah, the answer would be no. No, and I think a lot of writer-directors would probably have the same kind of um, need to control everything. Because if you are writing mm. and directing, and in some cases producing your film, you're going to want a bit more input on it than someone who's kind of a bit more uh, detached from the process and can give other viewpoints where, mm. yeah, I think a lot of the films we, we were speaking about today would have benefited from someone else putting their own in at some point just to give a certain uh, yeah. different perspective on things. As, yes, listen, no, as, uh, as someone who really enjoys Mammoth Speak, then I would suggest yeah. to you that the output of this movie is possibly the least Mammoth, and that is almost what makes it the best of Mammoth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll think on that one for a while, Craig. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you do that. You do that. Shall I talk about a film then uh, about whose received pronunciation I'm not entirely sure at this point? Feel free. Are we going with Oleana? I would go. I think it's Oleana, but I'm I not think sure. it's Oleana. I can't really yeah. think of any other way to pronounce it. I've been second guessing myself all night. Uh, right off the bat, I want to warn you of one thing: if you don't like dialogue-heavy movies, Oleana will not be your jam. <laughs> dialogue is almost always going to be the focus of a David Mamet movie, and even if that dissuades you, I would still encourage you to seek out something like Glengarry for the enjoyment of seeing an ensemble of great actors operating at the peak of their craft and the pleasure that can provide. Oleana, though, is different. Very different. And not because it doesn't contain excellent performances, because it does. Oleana is different because it is a wall of dialogue. A wall of mammoth dialogue. A wall of arch mammoth dialogue. <laughs> An insurmountable wall of arch mammoth dialogue that is built around you, the viewer, trapping you in a confined space alongside uncomfortable subject matter that seems purposefully tooled to start a fight in the proverbial empty room. <laughs> William H. Macy is college professor John. Deborah Eisenstadt is student Carol. The movie opens with Carol approaching John regarding her struggle to keep up with his course. There follows a prolonged conversation during which John disassembles the perceived artifice of the institution of higher education, calling into question its ultimate worth and deriding it as, quote, a test of one's ability to retain and spout back worthless misinformation, as well as, quote, an article of faith. In what may now be considered one of life's greatest and most satisfying ironies, John lambasts the perception of higher education among the middle classes as, quote, a fashionable necessity espoused as a matter of right, a frankly unassailable argument, starkly evidenced, not least of all because these are words coming out of William H. Macy's mouth. But I digress. I really, satisfyingly, wallowing in <laughs> schadenfreudely digress. <laughs> the conversation in question leverages Mamet's predisposition for interpretive dialogue to the nth degree, purposely doubling down on ambiguities both in words and their delivery, particularly on John's part, and if it is baffling, take comfort in knowing that that is by design. 
What John perceives, or perhaps more accurately sells, as an attempt to remove the artificial stricture of teacher and student culminates in him guaranteeing Carol an A if she spends more time chatting with him in his office, circumventing the norms of an oppressive system of learning and engaging on a more personal level. Do you see where this is going? That's interesting, because the whole point of Oleana, as far as I can fathom it, lies in the interpretation, and what seems increasingly obvious now as I explain the basic outline of the conversation is not necessarily so obvious as we watch that dialogue play out on screen. Isn't John just naively misguided in his innocent intention to help a student by engaging with them professionally, albeit out with the aforementioned strictures, or does he deserve the accusation of sexual harassment Carol subsequently levies against him? Removing ourselves from the thematic for a moment, it's worth noting that Oleana is, within the boundaries it sets itself, something of a Swiss watch. Not a cuckoo clock, mind you. We'll perhaps talk about those later. (laughs) Macy and Eisenstadt's back and forth, all mid-breath interruptions, truncated clauses and scattershot butts, is at times like an Olympic-level table tennis match in its timing, accuracy and speed. And I despair to think of the rehearsal required to operate at this level. I'd say Macy's performance is a level beyond. However, as we've discussed already, it's often hard to tell with Mamet, given that his precision of prose is often only matched by the affectation of its delivery, often rendering debate as to who was best effectively redundant. (laughs) And at the very least, Eisenstadt can be said to be holding her own. Ultimately, though, the star of any Mamet work is... Mamet, and here he gets the impression of an artist coming dangerously close to disappearing up his own arse. <laughs> that Oleana may ultimately be enjoyed in a disassociative technical sense is evident, but it certainly need not necessarily be considered enjoyable in the traditional. I'd argue there's a great deal of craft on display, ranging from very good to exceptional, but I might reasonably ask to what end we are employing that craft in a movie which has the stated aim, check the tagline in the promotional material, of making everybody wrong. Very clever, David. I'd say go to the top of the class, but we've already established that the class is a lie. I want to like Oleana, I really do, and I think there's a great deal of value to be had in the conversation around those topics it presents. I'm just not sure that I want it to be a movie. Or perhaps, more accurately, I don't want it to be this movie. But the fact of one not liking something does not preclude the state of one respecting it, and I guess that's probably where I sit. um, You began, Craig, by talking about dialogue-heavy movies and things, and and I actually really like dialogue-heavy movies. If you consider that a type of film on its own, then it's probably my favourite type of film. I do not, however, like this dialogue. <laughs> not at You're all. You're kidding. You've expressed a, <laughs> you've expressed a discontent <laughs> with Mamet generally, and you didn't like this film? Yes, this most Mamet is Mamet all films. Mamet? Yes, yes um, <laughs> this horrendously overblown and pompous dialogue. Um, the the Mamet mad. singularity did not yes. sit well with you? <laughs> I, I know I have shocked you. Um, I've completely <laughs> blindsided you like one of, um, one of David Mamet's great twists that he's so fond of. Um, you never saw this one coming like those, I'm sure. Mm. Uh, yeah, uh, but... I kind of hardened to hear that even you, who likes Mamet so much, um, thinks this is um, very much taking your right to turn up a butthole alley. Um, yeah. it's it's terrible. <laughs> I mean, the perform I can't argue the performances. The performances are superb, mm. but they're performances of hateful dialogue of hateful characters that I can't stand. None yep. of these people are nice, likable, interesting in any way. Um, and yes, there are interesting themes in there, but like I'm. I can't take any of this seriously coming out of these people's mouths because first of all, you've got like, again, there's 
the idea of like the first half of the film with the interpretation of like is he actually sexually harassing her is this a misunderstanding or is it just like you know a bad choice on his part or something but then he's invoking Kipling mm. that's not good you don't want to invoke Kipling Kipling was a get uh, and that particularly hateful term the white man's burden that Kipling came up with that's not good and then you've got this other character who's supposed to be it almost seems like she's sabotaging because she starts talking about in the second half of the film, is it Carol her name is? I've forgotten already. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, and she's talking about all these other things he'd said to students. I'm like, where did that come from? Did did she start the first half of this with an agenda? And like, why mm. was that suddenly sprung from like nowhere? With, yeah. Um, but but more than anything, she's like she's saying things like like paradigm. I don't know what that means. If paradigm can fit in a conversation between Matthew McConaughey and Steve Zahn in a Clive Cussler adaptation, <laughs> you're supposed to be in higher education. And th- but the point she's talking about, like indictment, what is that? I am literally screaming at the television. Yeah. Get the fucking dictionary. Yeah, mm. and I was like, like I'm completely away from the point of what she's saying now because this character's a moron. And I can't take anything this character's saying seriously. She's in higher education and can't work out the word indictment. Yeah. Not having it. So, yeah, while the performances are great, I basically hated everything both of them said. Up until the ending again, which kind of like the end of House of Games felt like it came from nowhere. Just like, it's like that step too far to violence. Like, mm. uh, it really sat out to me. And I, I like you're saying, Craig, like there are interesting themes that are in there. Like, to prompt a discussion but like I don't want it to be in a film particularly this film mm. I'm not like I'm happy to be in a film I just said yes not this film this film can't support it yeah essentially you touched on something that I had a nagging sense of Drew which is that I feel like there's almost an establishing act of these two's prior relationship missing from the start of this film mm-hmm. I almost feel like it started in media res in a sense and that I, I, I feel that we are implying some sort of former dynamic between the two uh, without it actually being explicit and I don't know again if that's a, a choice on Mamet's part to purposely obfuscate things and, and remove crucial context or you know just to just to provoke conversation but I really I just not entirely sure what the intent of this was other than to just wind people up yeah if anything I like this even less than you did Drew um, <laughs> I, that, that's a trick Scott well <laughs> yeah, I, 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 look I am normally uh, entirely on board with everything Mamet does but in, in this instance I, I did a bit of reading about this right the play that he uh, produced for this it was even one of the, the Ebert reviews where um, people were coming out of this having like heated debates about who's right, who's wrong, mm. this, that, and the other. Talking about I don't buy that content. for a second. Look, I mean, even if that's true, I, I just wish for one second that I cared enough about either of these characters to mm-hmm. care one iota about who's right and who's wrong. Because mm. I, mean, I would actually disagree with both of you. I don't think these are good performances either. Again, whether that's just hampered by Mamet's direction and dialogue who can say, but I found no common ground with any of these characters. Um, and, and to a degree, okay, you don't need to do that. You don't need to personally identify with any of them. But both of them felt like aliens talking in ways that, even for Mamet Sanders, do not sound like normal human beings. Yeah, um, Truly um, purposely obtuse, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Macy is just bad. He's a terrible communicator. And obviously he's acting like a terrible communicator. This character is a terrible communicator. That's the point of this. But still, it's just difficult to watch. And um, I, I completely agree with what Drew's saying. Um, Carol, um, Deborah, Eisenstadt's character, uh, just 
made me want to scream at the screen. Mm. Anyone that's in higher education that can't work out fairly simple words from context should not be in higher education. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah, <laughs> particularly given the whole concept, the conceit of this film is that she's complaining about failing a class. So yeah. it seems like she should be. Yeah. Because yeah. she can't it's understand not an basic concepts. Outcome, Carol. <laughs> yes. Um, it seems you're your greatest well deserved because you are a moron. <laughs> but Professor, <laughs> you say the cat sat on the mat. <laughs> what is a mat? I don't understand. It's, where is the rat? again if we're going back to i can see a platonic ideal of this film that does cover these kind of things Mm. and the themes that are there in each of the kind of three acts that is kind of divvied up in that make a kind of sense Mm. from a sort of abstracted thought about logical concept but in the way that it's presented in this film in particular it doesn't work um i thought this was almost unwatchable um, mm. which is is really the only one of these films that I, I really could not possibly recommend yeah. this is just it's a real chore to get through even if you like the kind of artifice that Mamet brings to his films yeah. and this is no, this is just a bridge too far it is too much Mamet this Some, needs to be substantially less Mamet than it might <laughs> yeah. Some, somewhere somewhere underneath here is arguably one of the most important movies that you could make now <laughs> right yes. Yes. and one of the most important conversations we could probably possibly have as a society is just, yes. and as you say, in the abstraction of it, I'm not entirely sure what the ideal was. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's something, it comes across as something else entirely. And if if Mamet's stated aim with this play is simply to infuriate his audience, then again, well, well done, David. Well done. Yeah. 100% cool. successful. Yeah. You can have an A, David. <laughs> And you don't have to sit and talk to William H. Macy to get it. So, yeah, man, this is just arch in so many ways that it, it just uh, crossed a, a threshold even for myself. I knew within I knew within five minutes of the start of this movie it was just going to be too much. There is, a, I feel, a great deal of dilution of the mammoth element that would be required here and a lot of retooling to be done to uh, yeah. turn this into something you know, with social efficacy. But yeah. anyway... Like a lot of mammoth's work, I... I- I can kind of see that this would work much better on a stage on the yeah. basis that when you put something on a stage, it necessarily abstracts reality to a degree mm-hmm. that you could get on board with it in a way that it doesn't so wor- work so much with films, which by necessity have to be set in the real world because yeah. they're filmed somewhere. Um, yeah. And I wonder if, had I seen this as the play was, it, was um, intended in the first instance, then maybe I would have got more out of it. Maybe I could have tuned that element out and just mm-hmm. been more on board with the characters. I doubt it. Yeah, but, I, I um, doubt that heavily yeah. too. There's, but, there's, uh, clear, clearly, this of all the works we've, we've seen today, the, the, most of them started as stage plays. This one clearly was only meant to ever be on a stage. Yeah. And this film adaptation... Yeah, no, it doesn't work. I think there's an inherent intimacy as well in a stage production uh, that would probably be of great benefit to this film as well because really, without having any connection to these characters whatsoever, it's hard to know what it is I'm supposed to be caring about Um, and it really feels just like a complete edgelord attempt to provoke a reaction for the sake of it. Um, So, yeah, we're all in agreement on this one tonight, I think. Yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm not, not glad that I saw it because it gives me a useful barometer for other things. (laughs) <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's oh, a functional I'm glad you found yardstick. utility in it, Greg. I certainly haven't. <laughs> it's a yardstick. A very... <laughs>
TR stick. <laughs> What's up next? I'll say from the the most mammoth of mammoth dialogue to at least the most peak mammoth name, given how interested he seems to be in this topic, Heist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, Heist, in which Gene Hackman's Joel Moore is coming to the end of his life of crime, and not just because an unexpected wrinkle in a Julie's soul robbery means he's finally been caught on camera. But before he can sail off into the sunset with his co-conspirator wife, Rebecca Pigeon's Fran, his fence, Danny DeVito's Mickey Bergman is rather insistent that Joe and the gang pull off one last job that he's already been setting up. And so Joe, Fran, and also Delroy Rindo's Bobby Blaine and Ricky Jay's Don Pinky Pincus start readying themselves to pull off an audacious gold ice from a transport plane, accompanied to their distaste by Mickey's nephew, Sam Rockwell's Jimmy Silk, whose inexperience and differing agendas soon complicates things. And indeed, complicating things is very much the theme of the piece, as plans go astray, as do the backup plans and the backup backup plans, either through bad luck or nefarious designs on the parts of the various players involved in this web of deceit. Now, there is a school of thought, it seems, that because Heist is not advancing a flashy or pyrotechnical agenda, it's not advancing the state of the art of crime capers. That's as maybe, but what it certainly does advance is a damned entertaining film with a sort of multi-layered con job plot that by this point is mummy's honed to an art form. Uh, Gene Hackman is of course excellent, and it's his wily performance as a man who's always a couple of steps ahead of everyone else that anchors the film alongside solid support from Lindo. Curiously, I found myself somewhat disappointed with Sam Rockwell's turn, mm-hmm. and I don't think that DeVito quite gets his teeth properly properly into his performance. Uh, these are minor niggles, however, and it's and overall it's a hyper-competent and very enjoyable watch. Perhaps it doesn't quite blow the doors off, but it certainly shouldn't be driven into the sea. <laughs> yes. For me, this was an enjoyable watch. Yay! In, in combination with a number of films on this list um, that we're doing tonight, it was fine. It was enjoyable enough. The performances are reasonable. It's quite entertaining. However, and again, I deliberately went into these films cold and you almost nothing about them, right? Every single twist that came, I saw coming. And I'm just like, I wasn't trying, I've said before, I can't switch that part of my brain off, but I could see them coming like a mile away. So I just don't think Dave, he loves these things, but he can't write them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the interplay between the characters was entertaining enough. I found it quite entertaining. I don't have a lot to say about that, other than that there's a strange mix of kind of fun dialogue in here and some absolutely honking dialogue. Now, for example, <laughs> it doesn't. It feels more like a Tarantino sort of thing than a, a David Mamet thing, but uh, there's a line where he says, my... Mo- uh, um, Something's talking about Delroy Lindo. No, it's not. It's about um, Gene Hackman. Yeah, he's talking about Hackman. My mofo's so cool, when sheep go to sleep, they count him. That's a fantastic line. But then in the same film, and not that far away, I think, Danny DeVito's lumbered with the line, everybody needs money, that's why they call it money. That's one of the worst lines I have ever heard of anything. I freaking love that line. I hate that line. It's meaningless. It makes no sense. It's perfect. I much prefer money being a was it a motive with a universal adapter kind of deal from that side of the gun. Way of the gun. Yeah, yeah. So eleven million dollars isn't money. It's a it's motive with a universal adapter on it. Yeah, that's a great line. Yeah. it's fine. What about just before um, we move on to Craig's thoughts on this, and at the risk of alienating both Craig and Scott in the one episode and having not talk to me again, this film, largely at my request, with a bit of input from Craig, was swapped out for another film 
called The Spanish Prisoner, which mm. I decided to watch as well, because, mm-hmm. you know, six films in three days by David Mamet that I wasn't particularly enjoying wasn't enough. I got in for a seventh. Um, and it also is fine. And Scott's particularly fond of it, but it also is fine. David Mamet cannot write twists because you can see them all coming, but it's the stuff around it that makes it entertaining. And uh, my fears of The Spanish Prisoner being unwatchable because of Steve Martin were okay because he's A, not in it that much, and B, Steve Martin is actually tolerable when he's not trying to be funny because he can't do funny. Spanish Prisoner's great. It's yes. fine. It's great. It I'm is glad great. we've all agreed Fine. that Spanish prisoners are great, but it's Greg, what great. do you think of heist? <laughs> <laughs> well, Scott, before we get to heist, let me just reiterate that the Spanish prisoner is great. It's fine. And I think great. heist is great. I Fine, really great. enjoy heist. Um, it was maybe only like the third mammoth film I think I'd I'd ever seen, and I, I remain really fond of it. I think it's probably like my second favourite mammoth film at this point. Uh, not the best, not even the second best, probably technically, but still my second favourite. I just get a lot out of this, and even on repeat uh, repeat viewings, I think this is a. To my mind, this is a really nice balance between the commercialism of that sort of last job, uh, one last job heist uh, movie with the sort of slightly more diluted mammoth dog uh, mammoth dog <laughs> mammoth <Mammet dialogue>. dog <laughs> dogs mammoth. of a mammoth don't dilute mammoth's dog he's done nothing wrong <laughs> um, that slightly more diluted form of the dialogue that probably makes it a little bit more palatable broadly speaking um, and there's just so much to enjoy about this like Danny DeVito should get shot in more films because it just feels really <laughs> satisfying and I think that's one of my favourite that's one of my favourite final lines in a, in a, or payoff lines in a film is don't don't you want to hear my last words? I just did. <laughs> um, I also love the fact that in the last ten minutes of this film, Delroy Lindo becomes a shotgun wielding jack in the box. He just springs up from behind <laughs> people to blow, <laughs> to blow to blow guys away with a shotgun, just really inexplicably. Um, the best use of Delroy Lindo, I find, even yeah. in the, like legal dramas, like the Good Fight, you just you just pop up with a shotgun. Yeah, and yes. Rick, Ricky J uh, just comes across as if he's asleep. He, he's he's he feels like he's in an almost entirely different film to everyone else uh, more so than usual in this film because obviously he's not a professional uh, actor or anything but he comes across as a little bit more stilted in this film but it kind of works in a weird way and I don't disagree with him on Cuckoo Clocks um, I think he's I think he's got that nailed um, there's just a lot to like about this and uh, even though it is that sort of one last job I find even things like the, the motivation behind it uh, slightly refreshing and perhaps more sort of realistic um, um, I mean, I can't get behind, you know, casually using bombs and bins as a distraction, but maybe that's just a side effect of having grown up in the 80s in Britain, where, you know, the IRA were doing that sort of thing to devastating effect, not just as a distraction tactic, but to kill people uh, in city centres. But there's a, yeah, I, j- I just find this really enjoyable. I think it's probably one of the more accessible movies. And I mean, has Gene Hackman ever been bad in anything? He's just he's just really engaging in this, and yeah, yeah. Superman four, 
Granted. No, Gene Hackman's great in Superman 4. <laughs> Superman 4's awful, but Gene yeah. Hackman's great in it. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen it, but I don't intend to. I may be conf- yeah, conflating the, yeah. the terrible film with, the ter- with a not a terrible performance, yeah. Scott, you may be right. I've, n- I've never seen Superman 4, but I'm well aware of the production history of that. <laughs> I'll be steering it's, well clear. Um, it's not quite Robocop 3, but, you know, close yeah. enough. <laughs> this is just a really nice balance of all those elements uh, and, you know, a subject matter that obviously Mamet is clearly infatuated with and I just think it's a really enjoyable hour and 40 or whatever it is that I just I've never had any beef with coming back to uh, to be honest again it's fine I enjoyed watching it Um, yeah we said that it's great I just why why should you just keep repeating what Scott and I have said we know it's great and I think it's like the Spanish prisoner. It's great, which is yeah. Yeah, you know, it's perfectly fine. But it's the the character <laughs> motivation, like the Rebecca Pigeon's character, then to heist. Mm. Like, yeah, that seems weakly motivated to me, mm. especially given that you know you were asked to go and do this thing and you agreed to it seemingly quite happily and other people were putting their lives in the line. So mm. it's not like you were being asked to do anything other people weren't doing in some ways. Like, oh. Yeah, good. yeah. Well, why is she going off with Sam? Well, because the plot demanded it, like, not because yeah. it actually made sense for the character. It's like, no. Nah, yeah. uh, to be fair, I'd go off with Sam Rockwell. So would I. Yeah, I so think he's I was, just, I was just, honestly, while he was very disappointing in this film, I was most disappointed that I didn't see Sam Rockwell's arse because apparently that was his <laughs> big thing, as you recall from our Sam Rockwell episode. It's like, it apparently wasn't a big enough player then to demand that in his contract. <laughs> If I do have one sort of egregious piece of feedback for this film, it is related to Sam Rockwell, but it's not necessarily his performance. Uh, it's his moustache. No, it's why, why? I'd really just wish they hadn't given his character a porn star name. Jimmy Silk. <laughs> Nobody's called yeah. Silk. Go away. <laughs> it just feels really weird to me. It doesn't sit well on my palate. Sorry. But uh, yeah, great. I mean, it's better in the Spanish prison in one way that it doesn't rely on ridiculous coincidence. Um, so, you know, it's actually better in that way. So, um, <laughs> but again, both are fine. Yes, both are great. I, I don't um, regret watching them, but I'll never watch them again. Shall well, we? Thank uh, you for tuning in to this uh, review of the Spanish heist prisoner. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. Shall we move on to Spartan? Yes, we shall. 2004's Spartan. She's missing. Where is the girl? <laughs> yes, I'm glad you're here. I heard the TV and I came inside. I came inside and you weren't here. Why would you do that? Why would you leave the TV on? Where is the girl? You've had your whole life to prepare for this moment. Why aren't you ready? Where is the girl? I freaking love Spartan. I love it because it's Tom Clancy with mammoth dialogue, and that's all I really ask for in this life. I get to hear military speak with every possible extraneous syllable cast out. I get to see arms dispassionately broken in the pursuit of intel. I get to see people being shot in the head without knowing whether it's because of plot machinations or simply out of confusion arising from the fact that nobody can possibly understand a goddamn word that's coming out of Val Kilmer's mouth. Val Kilmer, who is, by the way really great as a former force recon master gunnery sergeant whatever the f*** one of those is I think it's a soldier who gets to walk around talking like they're on methamphetamine but looking like they're on PCP doesn't matter, his name is Bobby Scott it's great, where is the girl? ostensibly involved in recruit selection 
Smash Sneak Gun Hand Officer Scott is somewhat sidetracked by the kidnapping of a young college student who everybody in this film refuses to acknowledge as the president's daughter. Due to some recent creative choices in hairstyling on this young lady's part, it becomes apparent that her kidnappers, part of a sex trafficking operation, do not realise who they've taken. The problem is that when they do, there is but one likely outcome. Only this will not be a problem, as Scott has a knife, a gun, a particular particular set of skills, and a very definite affectation in his loose interpretation of conversation, courtesy of David Mamet. An affectation that means he gets to say things like, you have to set your mother to receive, instead of, listen. I love it. Where is the girl? By this point, we'd been through Alec Baldwin, Harrison Ford and Ben Affleck as incarnations of Jack Ryan, and the whole military intrigue and skullduggery genre looked like it was going to have to give way for Jason Bourne, so I'd have been sad to see it go entirely. What I wasn't expecting was for the King of Con to turn his hand to it, but clearly, I am glad he did. I find Spartan to be a really interesting movie for a number of reasons, not least in its attempt to marry high art with a more overtly steroid fueled masculine genre that can quite often be the stomping ground of low-budget macho dreck. Not that Spartan doesn't have those moments. Scott's inquiry into a young female cadet's teaching of edged weapons leads to a rare line that could just as easily have come from the mouth of Steven Seagal as it does the pen of Mamet. The plotting isn't perhaps as solid as they come. There are a couple of sharks lining up in the hopes of one day being jumped, but Spartan never quite throws logic completely out the pram, even if it does skirt pretty close. That uh, scarecrow on a pitchfork thing? Eh, don't worry about it. What's important (laughs) is that Spartan is unique. It is weird, and it was out there doing its thing in 2004 at a time when I desperately needed some comfort food in my life. I'm not going to make some foolhardy attempt at arguing this is the best movie we've spoken about tonight, but it is my favourite. She's in Dubai, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this this and the next one we speak of is slightly weird, and it is one of of America's most respected uh, playwrights, turning his hand to genre filmmaking and having weird results that <laughs> kind of work. Um, I'm not quite so as um, effusive about it as you, you are, Craig, uh, but I do like Spartan. I do like what it's trying to do. I do like the way that it's taken what is basically a, a whole bunch of genre tropes and run them through Mamet's dialogue mm. uh, process and come up with something that is just weird. Um, it's a fascinating film to watch. I, I don't know if I'd say I wholeheartedly love it but it's definitely a a really interesting film to watch given that i mean certainly if you come from the same arena that we have you know baked in 80s action nonsense Mm. and seeing it kind of filtered through mamet's um, perspective has resulted in something that's kind of unique and i do like it um i I wouldn't say i love it um (laughs) i'm not sure that said i I don't have too many criticisms of it I, i i like val kilburn's weird performance in it. I like all the weird dialogue that's in it. I like the fact that it's just weird that, you know, guys like, um, oh, oh, God, his name's gone out of my head. I only can think of him as Al Bundy, when Al Bundy shows up. Oh, (laughs) is it Ed O'Neill or something? Ed Ed O'Neill, that's right. And uh, various other characters of his his returning roster of uh, champions comes back just just to, to have these kind of weird moments where it's like, it's like 24 filtered through some kind of abstract, <laughs> surrealist <laughs> uh, mm. prism. Um, and yeah, 
I think Spartan works. I, I'm, I'm certain that um, others on this podcast, I'm looking at you, Drew, will think that it doesn't. Um, but um, for the most part, the fact that Mamet's dialogue is fused with, I think, serviceable genre standard thriller um, kind of works to interesting effects. It's certainly um, the most filmic of the films we've spoken about thus far. Mm. It's certainly not a film that you can imagine being a stage play, um, but whether it works completely <laughs> as a film, uh, I'm not sure, but it's really interesting to watch, so I'm happy <laughs> enough for that respect. So, yes, I'm not, go I, for it. I never get tired of coming back to this film. <laughs> yeah, um, because of Craig's effusiveness for this film, this was the film in this episode, uh, Glenn Gary's Epixer, that's the one I'd already seen, that I was most looking forward to watching. And it's fine. It's great. It's, it's fine. <laughs> it's I enjoy it's the best it. film. But it's, <laughs> we've, all, we've it, all agreed that it's the best. It's David Mamet does Taken. Yes. Yeah. Um, Before Taken, to the Taken, yeah. to be fair. And, uh, but. It, it has, for me, the same sort of problems I have with things like 24, which I find very entertaining, mm. but um, the main character is a reprehensible, amoral criminal. Whereas hero, hero. Kiefer Sutherland is a dour and miserable person. Val Kilmer's incredibly entertaining, um, <laughs> even though his character is a criminal, um, extrajudicial <laughs> killings, killing people that he doesn't know are actually involved with any of this. You know, so like, it's, it's repugnant, um, <laughs> but it's at least entertainingly repugnant. <laughs> um, but it's fine. Um, I, I just... I was on. I genuinely, really, really wanted to like this because of your enthusiasm, Craig, and I was really mm. forced to this. And I was like, "Oh, yeah, it's David Mamet does taken, okay." Um, <laughs> with with a really, really stupid political conspiracy added on to again, um, this, as, as Scott pointed out, this predates Taken, but never mind. Yeah, but it's basically the same story. It's David Lynch does Twenty Four. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not seeing that one at all. It's yeah. It's fine. Again, I'll never watch this again. I, I don't resent having seen it this one time. I, I, I found it passably enjoyable, but it's not special. You didn't need um, those two hours anyway, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've watched considerably worse films. I, I mean, again, there's always the danger of, of things having been built up, and I, I know how much you like this film, Craig, and I was mm. kind of waiting for something really special. Like, I make no case for it. I mean, it, it's not Oliana. <laughs> Um, or House of Games, you know, it, it's, I didn't hate it, but again, it's, it's fine. Um, and what I'm reminded of by watching this is like, I really do like Val Kilmer. Uh, I wish, I don't know why we ever let him sort of slide. Was it purely reputational that he sort of fell out oh, of favour? Uh, he is an absolute asshat yeah, in real life by yeah. all accounts. Um, although, underfly with age, he's mellowed a bit. Um, mm. Do you remember when what well, when cinemas were still a thing? But there was for several years those orange adverts. Yeah, mm. um, like don't let a mobile phone ruin your movie. Mm. And he was in one of those where he was very much poking fun at his own persona. So I'm wondering by that point if he'd become aware of that and had yeah. kind of changed in real life. Yeah, because um, he had a bit of fun with MacGruber and stuff as well, didn't he? But but then he'd done Top Secret early in his earlier in his career. Yeah, but Top Secret's his first film. But yeah. Top Secret's amazing. It's yeah. so good. He's he's clearly got such a great comic turn. And um, I just watched Kiss Kiss Bang Bang again just a couple yes. of months ago, and it's like it's amazing. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Yeah, he is. He is so good at dry comic delivery, mm. um, and there's definitely there are bits of that in here. So. 
yeah, it's uh, he's the best thing about it by a country mile. Mm. And yes, I mean it's kind of unfortunate for him, but like you, Scott, I, I see Ed O'Neill. I think Al Bundy. I watched the Spanish Prisoner and Ed O'Neill turns up. Well, yeah, it's definitely. Al Bundy's like. also in the Spanish Prisoner. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's not quite so egregious when he shows up in like Wayne's World because it's fakely the no character. But yeah, yeah. Uh, it's hard to uh, suspend disbelief when he shows up in the Spanish Prisoner for sure. Yeah, uh, <laughs> FBI agent mm, Al Bundy <laughs> and Spartan is great. Yeah. Okay. Spartan is. Uh, well, if I say it, will you? Well, I um, get a pass. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's 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 fine. I, I say don't. <laughs> he still can't bring I'm himself. Just... <laughs> oh, because it's not true to say that. True. It's bring yourself fine. to be correct. Just say that it's great. <laughs> I, I can't even jokingly say it, Craig. You know, but it's, it's fine. We'll let you go. This can all end, Drew. Any time you want. You just have to say it's great. Unfortunately, Drew, you know it can't end because we have to talk about one more film, Red Belt. Yes. Would you like to guess, even before I can, how I felt about this final film, Scott? Did you think it was great? That's it. It was great, yeah. Uh, uh, 20 weeks Red Belt, again directed by Mamet. Uh, hold on. He did, didn't he? No, I'm sorry. Yes, he did. Um, yes. Yes, yes 20 Weights Red Belt, again, directed by Mamet, brings her total of likeable, good, morally that is, characters for the podcast up to one. <laughs> <laughs> We've reached the heights of one moral character. Uh, in this case, Tutel Force Mike Terry, the master of a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school in Los Angeles. A former soldier, with a never more than hinted at experience of dark or questionable things done while serving, he now spends his time trying to help and to teach people to better themselves through the instruction of martial arts, far more concerned with honour and integrity than mundane matters like making enough money to pay the rent. A point of contention for his Brazilian wife Sandra, played by Alice Braga. The calamitous arrival into his dojo one night of a distressed woman, Laura, Emily Mortimer, sets in motion a chain of events that will see Mike's belief in his warrior's code and his desire not to fight competitively sorely tested as a tale of stolen goods, stolen ideas, suicide, dodgy boxing promoters, though I'm pretty sure this is another tautology, and <laughs> difficult in-laws harshies the shit out of his beatific mellow. <laughs> there are two inciting events, in fact, that end up connecting, with the other being Mike saving Tim Allen's drunken action hero. He's reasonable on the road, to be fair to him, but Tim Allen as an ageing action movie star is a tough sell. Uh, saving him from a, a bar fight, something that will send him into the orbit of Joe Mantegna's uh, shifty movie producer. With everything coming to a head during the I Can't Believe It's Not UFC contest between Mike's brother-in-law, Ricardo Silva, and Japanese challenger, Taketa Morisaki, real-life martial artist, John Machado and Ensign Inoue. David Mamet cannot write or certainly cannot direct, a satisfying or surprising twist. A problem then, when so much of his cinematic output seems stuffed to the gunnels with twists. And such is the case here. Particularly when we are, presumably, supposed to be blindsided by the revelation that the old Asian man behind the mask, who is clearly a young Asian man walking very stupidly, is in fact the young Asian man we met early in the film, portraying his trick of transforming a small black object into a small white object. 
He can undermine the expectations, though, as the film spends a lot of time with the undercard of the Silva versus Morisaki fight looming in the background, like Chekhov's pay-off-your-debts-quickly plan. And when it seems that it's actually going to happen, I was deeply disappointed, since it seemed to be unfitting to Mike's beliefs in philosophy, enforced by circumstances it may have been, and it would have been far more interesting for this fight film to not actually have a fight. The manner in which a physical contest does provide the film's climax then is much more satisfactory than I feared it would be. Even if, despite the upbeat, if credulity-busting ending, there's no way once the cameras stop rolling that Mike's not going to prison for many, many years. As Mike, Turatel Ejiofor is the film's main draw and saving grace. The serene, noble, honour-bound if perhaps self-delusional, warrior feeling believable and engaging in his hands, and not as preachy as it could otherwise have been. It's something Ejiofor has done multiple times, in fact, if in somewhat different takes in the likes of Serenity and Doctor Strange. And simply as a character, it's also refreshing to find a decent person in one of these films. In the end, though, Red Belt is another film this selection advises it best to, listen to me, boys, fine. <laughs> So we've agreed that Red Belt's great. Um, <laughs> I enjoyed that. I have to say, Red Belt was... I hadn't seen this before going into this, but I was always like, curious because it's David Mamet doing a martial arts film mm-hmm. and it seemed like a bizarre concept and that's more or less what it's proven to be in, in a lot of ways. When I try to think about what, what I was really thinking about this film, I found myself falling between two stools because either it's a, a drama with martial arts elements that doesn't really deliver on the drama portion, or it's a martial arts film that, with dramatic elements where the, the martial arts film elements don't quite deliver, and it falls right between those two stools. But thankfully, that's where I am with my mouth open, waiting for it to fall into my mouth. So that's fine. Um, <laughs> I, I, I turned out to really like Red Belt. Um, there's a lot of things in here that I do like, um, particularly uh, Elijah Ford's performance. Now, uh, the only issue I'd take with what your description of the, the events at the end is that there's no way that Elijah Ford would have found himself in prison because he would have been shot. Let's yes. be honest. Mm. <laughs> Recent events have proven that there's no way he would have survived that final act. However, that aside... Yeah, his character arc, I think, works out incredibly well throughout the performance of the film. Yes, there's there's no twist in here you couldn't see coming a mile away, um, particularly when you introduce a character who's doing sleight of hand for no reason. Yes. <laughs> Other than the end of it, it's like, okay, right, I see where you're going there. Thanks. <laughs> Cheers. Um, but yeah, yes, there's... I don't know whether I really want to say that I really like this film as being one of the kind of martial arts films that would have been absolutely spooged about if it had starred, say, I I don't know, uh, John claude Van Damme, Johnny Yen, whoever you like from these kind of uh, periods during the time, that that would have been like the best martial arts film because it has such a great dramatic background in it. And if it was judged as being a martial arts film that had some nice bits of uh, character development and all that stuff going on to it. Um, But coming into it from more of a traditional mamate uh, uh, canon, then you wind up thinking about this as a dramatic film that has some really underdeveloped dramatic moments, like all of um, Emily Mortimer's um, character Mm -hmm. is so woefully underdeveloped that... He, she seems like a really good character. I really enjoy her performance, but she needs to be in it more of this, particularly for what happens during the end performances and, and all that kind of stuff. And the thing that happens with um, uh, Lee Joe's wife, 
again, it, it just doesn't tie up dramatically. Um, it, it, it's a, a really strange film. It doesn't quite manage to to tie up its martial arts roots and its dramatic roots. Um, yeah. I love it for that. <laughs> I think that's what makes it a sort of unique and interesting film to watch. Um, it's not a great film, but I think it's a good film to watch. Um, I think if you have any kind of appreciation of uh, like film from a more kind of critical theory, this is a fantastic film to watch and kind of pick uh, like what could have been done a little bit differently, what could have made it a little bit better on either of these two axes, or whether you judge it as like a martial arts genre film or as a kind of traditional drama. And uh, we can talk about whether it's fair to actually split that up as a, a, a critical consensus or not. But still, uh, overall, it's a fascinating film to watch for a number of reasons. And even that aside, it's just quite an entertaining film to watch because everyone is quite good. And yeah. it's it, the action, as it turns out, turns out pretty good. So, yeah, I have a number of beefs that I could go into with it, but I don't think it's worth doing so in this um, arena, other than to say I think Red Belt's quite a good film to watch. I quite enjoyed it. Give it a go. <laughs> um, just like, to your point about Emily Mortimer, although it, it's really the case with all of them, it's like, the problem with the characters is that they aren't... They have characteristics, but I mean, they need yeah. some backstory. And, uh, I guess like, like, while like, um, Tutor Elgio for so much, like, can it, he... Kind of his serenity through it, kind of papers over some of his. Like, there's slight hints about, like, you know, when somebody asks him, Did you tell him what you did when you were a soldier? Yeah, like, yeah. Okay, what's that? And when Ellie Morton was introduced, she's. It, it feels like she's getting, like, drugs for someone else, but they seem to be for her, given you see her taking them in the cafe with him later. Yeah. But it's like, there, there are hints there, but, like, I need more. And the Alice Braga thing was it's the one bit I didn't see come because she kind of disappears in the film for about half an hour. Yeah, yeah. Is that like it makes sense that like she's maybe she's fed up. She's she's worried about this money that she's borrowed that she can't pay back, and that um, all the dodgy promoters are involved with her family. So like mm. the whole family pressure, like that she would go to them, makes sense. She drops out of the film for half an hour, so you don't know when it. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of frustrating to me. Like, it's fine. I enjoyed my time with that. I like Chuta Edge for a lot. It's just that I don't know. The characters need kind of well, more character. It's just it frustrated yeah. me more than anything. Rather than some of the other films, actually, I just actively disliked. I well, agree. I, I only I, I didn't actually actively dislike more than one of them. Um, but it's it, it's kind of frustrating because I think it's a weird martial arts film if you want to call it that. Uh, but I was enjoying it, but. Again, it's more for say it's like I want more, yeah, more uh, character. I was thinking when I watched this, this is the one time you'll almost never hear me say this. I wish this film was longer. <laughs> I wish this film had a bit more time to get a delve into these characters. I mean, one thing we don't mention in all these films is um, Mamet's um, efficiency tends to put him to what ninety-five minutes is the maximum for his scripts. I, I really think this could have done with about another at least half hour um, going into some of the character backgrounds with uh, some of these guys. But yeah, yeah, uh, I think I've made my my feelings clear. I think it's worth watching. So. Do it. So do I. Just in case you're confused, honestly. Uh, I enjoyed my time with them, and like, but like Mama himself, it's made not a huge amount of impact to me, and I'm quite confident I'll never return to um, or any of these films, Margaret, yeah. Glenn, Glenn Ross. But glance saw it once. It's certainly worth watching the once. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that will wrap us up for today. If you'd like to get in touch with us for this reason or any other, then please do so uh, through email at podcast at fudsonfilm.com or through the Twitters at twitter.com slash fudsonfilm. And uh, until next time, take care of yourself and each other. Goodbye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Abianto. <laughs>